And hello and welcome to this week's edition of Novak Now. I'm Jake Novak here on the Nachum Siegel Network. And today I'm really going to focus on what I think is the best scenario for Israel politically moving forward. I know it really seems like Israel is at this absolute roadblock right now, logjam politically. Um, and the proposal that I'm going to lay out for everyone is not exactly in the cards right now as far as likelihood that, that, that folks will do this. But, but it is a, scenario, a series of scenarios that I think are still realistic would be beneficial to just about everybody and um, could hopefully get Israel out of this jam that it's in politically. There's a lot of political aspects of life in Israel that are difficult. I, you know, in, in my lifetime, I've never seen anything like this where they've had to go right back to elections after not being able to create any kind of coalition, no kind of unity government, no way out other than new elections. And elections take a lot out of a society. I mean, imagine if the United States had to do two presidential elections back-to-back within the space of five months. I mean, that would be really rough on us. We wouldn't like it. And I don't know if, if the culture in this country could take it without having some major cracks and perhaps even violence. Israel won't go you know, that, down that road. It won't be as bad for them. But it's still going to be a tough, tough situation for them. Everyone right now is still, I think, in that little bit of a state of shock that there has to be another election. We haven't really geared up towards the big fight yet. And, you know, that's because there's another 85 days or so before the, the election. But it's going to start becoming a reality really soon for the, the parties in Israel. But before I do that here on, on, the, on Novak now here in the Nachum Siegel Network, before I do that, I want to do, a, pretend this is kind of a big boxing match. Our main event is, again, this political roadmap that I, I want to lay out for fixing the issues in Israel politically, relatively so, obviously not making it a utopia, but fixing this logjam. But before that, I want to do an undercard. I want to do two undercard uh, uh, issues before we get to the main event, which is, again, fixing that political logjam. And the first one is really the big international news for all the world right now, and certainly in the United States, which was really a, a quite an interesting weekend for uh, the Trump administration and President Trump first going to the G20 summit in Osaka, Japan, and agreeing for basically a timeout with China on trade negotiations, uh, wherein both countries have agreed not to slap each other with further tariffs. There was even more tariffs on the way from the United States towards China, higher, higher, higher tariffs, and um, it, and also the United States. Re- relieved some of the restrictions on the Chinese telecom giant Huawei, which is accused, and rather credibly so, of industrial and military-type espionage. Espionage. The United States still won't do direct business with them and allow them to do contracting here in the United States, but the Trump administration now, during this trade truce period, will allow Huawei to buy certain U.S. products that President Trump at least says will not uh, lead to any kind of espionage. So you had that, and that was already big news. I mean, uh, that w- was enough of a headline for the weekend. But then President Trump went to the DMZ that separates North and South, Car- uh, South Korea, the demilitarized zone, that's what DMZ stands for, stands for, and then crossed over the DMZ into North Korea and had a short meeting with the dictator of North Korea, Kim Jong-un. And that, of course, has set off a number of different reactions. You've had a ton of Trump supporters, and I assume some neutral people, including Pope, John, Pope Francis, who are calling that move by President Trump to be historic, wonderful, 
uh, perhaps even Nobel Prize worthy. Um, the Pope saying it's a really positive step for this kind of dialogue to happen face to face. Um, and that's mostly coming from the Trump supporters, but of course, Pope Francis, no Trump supporter, uh, saying at the same. And I guess some people who really want peace at all costs are, are happy with it. Um, and then from the Democrats and, and most of President Trump's detractors, there is a strong condemnation of this. Uh, they're furious that he's shaking hands with this dictator, Kim Jong-un, and there's no denying that Kim Jong-un is a vicious, brutal dictator. Uh, his country is in no, you know, is, is probably the furthest from free country in the world. And they're condemning any kind of Congress with, uh, with Kim Jong-un. And, you know, I, I've written about this in the past, and I think it's an important point. I, there's one consistent thing about the left in this country, about the Democrats uh, and, and most of the news media, which is, and you've heard me say this before on, on Novak Now as well, there is a very, very um, misguided, unbalanced view from that side of the, of, of the ledger when it comes to actions versus words. It really is, beca- and it's getting worse. The left and, the, and most of the American news media and the Democrats, again, you could argue that's all one and the same, really seem to value words over actions. And it's infuriating. Uh, so President Trump says something nice about Vladimir Putin, but keeps strict sanctions in place and, and keeps building up our military to threaten Russia's, Russia's dominance in certain areas of the world and keeps supporting countries like in Eastern Europe who uh, are getting missile shields either from the United States or from our ally Israel or, 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 or natural gas so that Russia's oil doesn't create an economic dominance over the region. That to them means not as much as the fact that President Trump said something nice or is friendly with, seems to be friendly in public with, with Vladimir Putin. And this doesn't add up. It just, it's, it's very silly to, to really... It's, it's, it's a real lack of priorities to do stuff like that. And they're doing this again with Kim Jong-un. Has President Trump removed any of the sanctions from North Korea? No. Has President Trump given North Korea any kind of money, humanitarian aid, whatever you want to call it? Whatever goes into North Korea is going to be st- stolen by the regime anyway. So has that happened? No. Uh, the, the one argument that some people make, and it's worth mentioning again because there is something to this argument, is that when President Trump makes nice, at least publicly with the Putin and especially with Kim Jong-un, it gives these guys some form of legitimacy that they don't deserve. Now, this is an important argument to make and, and not to ignore because it has some truth to it. It has some truth to it. I get, I get a big part of that argument. But here's the thing. First of all, again, Actions still speak louder than words, even when it's the president. And I, and I agree that the president's words and, are, are more important. The president's gestures are more important than almost anyone else in the world. So I'm not denying that. There is something to that. But when the actions remain strong, when the sanctions remain in place, when tough military buildups remain in place, when nothing else has been given other than, yes, some form of legitimacy by shaking a hand or by exchanging nice letters... Yeah, it's not that much. It's not that much. And there's a big, big difference between doing that in concert with some kind of concession and not doing it in concert with some kind of concession. And of course, the biggest example of that, the biggest example of how we can see the difference between the two here 
is what the Obama administration and initially the Obama transition team did in 2008 and 2009 when it came to Iran. Now, if there were a large, peaceful, or any kind of uprising movement within North Korea, a protest movement, one that we could see and knew about, uh, marches on the streets, some form of elections that where people were actually making their voices heard, and President Trump made these kinds of gestures, shook the hand, and, and exchanged the nice letters with Kim Jong-un, then that would, be even, that would be truly, truly problematic. Because that would be giving legitimacy to a dictator at a time when at least some of the people in his country were yearning for more freedom. Now again, <laughs> some of you might know where I'm going with this. In 2009, that's exactly what the Obama administration did in Iran. There was a popular uprising in Iran at the time. There was a protest movement. There was a, a, a real effort to get change and more freedom for their society. And just as that movement was starting to get really large numbers in the streets, and, and this is not to be confused with what's going on right now in Iran, 10 years later, and starting you know, last year with the, with, the, with the sometimes riots and certainly strong protests on the streets. This was the initial spark of that kind of movement for freedom in Iran. And just when that was going on, the Obama administration was giving huge legitimacy, huge economic support, huge backing to that existing repressive, still repressive Iranian regime by beginning the building blocks towards what eventually became the 2015 nuclear deal. And we know all the things that the Obama administration did to make that happen, including turning the other way on investigations in this country by the FBI on Hezbollah terrorist activities in this country because Iran backs Hezbollah and they didn't want the FBI messing up this Iran deal. I mean, there are so many other examples of this. It actually gets nauseating when you think of all the things that the Obama administration sacrificed for this lousy Iran nuclear deal, which also here on Novak now, I've explained why it was a bad deal. Not because it delayed maybe Iran's nuclear program. It's because it gave Iran much more money and free hands to continue killing. And honestly, if they're going to be the biggest terrorist killing machine in the world, which Iran is, what does it matter if they wait a few more years for a nuclear, for, to get access to a nuclear weapon? It's, it's very silly. It was a silly, bad deal. You know, if, if, if the Iranians were willing to give up their nuclear program or realistically allow for even better investigation, inspections as opposed to getting all kinds of advance notice before inspections and things like that. That was one problem with the deal. But if in return for that they were also willing to defund somewhat Hezbollah and Hamas, then, then I, I think I would have been in, in favor of the deal too, actually. But we didn't get any of those things. And when it comes to, le to legitimizing a repressive, horrific government, what President Trump is doing right now with Kim Jong-un with these little symbolic gestures is nothing. Nothing compared to what the Obama administration did in 2009. Nothing. So that is when I think you have a real, real problem. Is it, I, I, you know, I, I don't think it's as problematic with President Trump and Kim Jong-un for all the reasons that I've just mentioned. There is no popular uprising in Korea. There is nobody out there saying, here's a legitimate leader of Korea. There is nobody who President Trump is, should be shaking hands with from the North Korean side right now. And the other argument is that getting really tough and isolating him and making Kim Jong-un a persona non grata, listen, he deserves it. He absolutely deserves it, don't get me wrong. But doing all that hasn't worked. 
And I think President Trump is trying a personal flattery offensive while continuing to keep the sanctions and military pressure in place. And let's see what happens. I just don't think it's that meaningful. When you have a regime like North Korea, where there isn't even a popular uprising on the streets of any kind, ever, then there's really no one else whose hand to shake. There's really no point in just isolating him. There's plenty of points in continuing the sanctions and getting tough and all of that, and, and President Trump shouldn't give in anything to North Korea until they really make a serious concession. All they've done so far is halt intercontinental ballistic missile testing, which is something, it's something, it's good, but it's not enough. It's not enough. It's not enough for anything more than the handshakes and the symbolic gestures, even though a president's, a U.S. president's symbolic gestures and handshakes and words absolutely are very meaningful. But in the end, actions always mean more than words. And for Democrats, and not only on this issue, there's so many other issues, it's really, really clear that words are more important than actions. And that is really, really problematic for a society, for people who believe that kind of nonsense. So that's the first undercard, the first issue I want to get to before I get to here on Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network, the political roadmap I'd like to lay out for Israel. The second one is just a little bit of a follow-up. I talked about it last week extensively, the Bahrain Workshop Economic Conference that took place. And just a couple of takeaways and and things that we know now that that is over. Uh, Again, this is the initial one-aspect rollout of the Trump administration's peace plan for Israel and the Palestinians, and they wanted to go to the economy first. So the first thing I want to talk about is, on that one, uh, the interesting thing that the, Obama, that, that, that the Trump administration was doing, I should say, when it came to this conference, because uh, it was something that I didn't really think about too much until uh, Scott Adams, who I, I talk about a lot on this program, but he understands a lot of things, and, and I apologize if you're getting sick of me quoting him, but he, he came up with a, a really good point about the Bahrain conference uh, this past week. Again, the, the Trump administration was roundly criticized for talking about economics here, for making it all about the, the financial positives that the Palestinians stand to gain if they can make some kind of peace agreement and, and become less belligerent to Israel. And I talked last week about how I really don't think the Trump administration truly 100% believes that economics can solve all these problems, but they wanted to make it clear to the world how much the United States and its allies are willing to offer the Palestinians so that nobody can say, oh, nobody offered them any help to get out of poverty or to get out of their economic situation. But Scott Adams made another point, which is by going straight to the economic benefits before talking about how you would actually make a territorial deal, how you would get down at the table and discuss military, all that kind of stuff, the United States was essentially, the Trump administration was essentially doing something that salesmen do, which is called talking past the deal. So imagine you're, and that's, that's, that's something you can all understand is if, you, if you understand this concept. Imagine you're going to buy a home, and you're, you're walking through the home, you're doing the little open house tour, and the realtor isn't talking to you about mortgage rates and points on the mortgage and when you're going to have to do the closing. That's not what a good real estate agent does. A good real estate agent says, here, take a seat in this lovely breakfast nook. Hey, take a look outside on the patio. We're grilling here on the grill. Wouldn't you like to do that? Imagine the indoor pool. Imagine having fun with your family at this dining room table. That is what a good salesman and saleswoman or saleswoman does. They talk past the sale. They immediately talk about the, the fun stuff, the cool stuff, the, thing that you, the things that you're going to look forward to after the deal is done. 
And that's what the United States and the Trump administration and the Kushners and Greenblatts were essentially doing here, even though, again, I, I strongly believe they don't think that economics can solve this problem. But I think that they know that it's important to show the Palestinian people the goodies first, even if they're not willing to sit at the table. And speaking of not wanting to sit at the table, there was at least a couple of Palestinian business people who came, including one from Hebron, who showed up, and immediately after he came back to the Palestinian territory, they, he was arrested by the Palestinian Authority for having the gall to talk about economic uh, improvements for the life, lives of his fellow Palestinians. They threatened that they would, you know, maybe even kill him. He got arrested. And thanks to some strong objections from the United States Embassy and from the Trump administration, it looks like he was quickly released. And I have to ask, and I'm sorry to do this if you're an Obama lover, but I have to ask, would the Obama administration have protested as strongly and as quickly and as effectively as the Trump administration did if, this, if, if they had still been in power when this happened? I, I just, I don't know. I honestly don't know the answer to that question. I'd like to think yes, but I think I'm leaning towards no, but I'm still not sure. I'm still not sure. And finally, there is one person uh, who I think, you know, you can look up online, and I'll, and I'll try to get it on my Twitter feed, which is at JakeJakeNY, and I'll put it on Facebook as well. Uh, Professor Eric Sonnenfeld from Yale University actually really likes the economic nuts and bolts of this plan. He really liked it just from an economic standpoint. He thought it was really, really strong, and he's no Trump lover, and he's just very enthusiastically likes this plan. So... You know, maybe there is something to this economic plan again, but they would have to make some kind of real <laughs> negotiation at the at the table on territory and military, probably before and military before any of this happens. But interesting to note that Professor Sonnenfeld, who's a respected Yale School of Management guru, liked the ins and outs of of this economic plan. So again, nothing major, nothing major on the surprising side from the Bahrain conference, the the workshop or whatever you want to call it. But still, some, some interesting insights that, that I wanted to add, including that really important idea of talking past the sale. I, I really think that the Trump administration wants to get that, the, the discussion and the thought process of the goodies, the good things that can come from a peace deal, out in the open first, before anyone talks about territory, before anyone talks about what are they going to do about arming the Palestinian Authority or whatever. It's, it's not a bad plan from a sales point of view, and, and listen, this comes from an administration that is a businessman's, businesswoman, salesperson's administration, and this is what you would expect from them. And will it be effective? I don't know. Has anything been effective before? No. <laughs> so uh, if anyone is going to start getting crazy and upset and pulling their hair out over this economic workshop and all the reasons they think it's wrong, uh, you know, again, this is something that is true of every kind of critique of the Trump administration. I mean, whenever he tries something that's new and different, uh, in, in areas where nothing has worked, either he succeeds or he's also going to not, not succeed in the places where everyone else has failed in their, you know, in their genius uh, level plans that they've had in the past. And you get these people talking about, well, we don't like the way Trump is spending money on this. I, I, Trump didn't create the $21 trillion debt that he walked into. I, I would have to say my, my biggest critique of this administration right now has been that he has not really reined in spending. It hasn't been for lack of trying. If you remember his first budget, there were a lot of proposed cuts that he wanted to get through. Uh, but still, uh, to, to make it sound like he's the reason why we have this now even larger debt is just ridiculous. Obviously, the established, wonderful people from both parties in the past haven't done any better at all. And, and they, they're, they're the ones really responsible for, the, for, for, for this debt. So that's where we are 
on on Bahrain and before that just the Kim Trump meeting. Um, I want to talk now again here on the Nachum Siegel Network on Novak now what I think would probably be the best case scenario for almost every party involved, literally and figuratively when I say the word party, in Israel leading up to these new elections in the middle of September. God help us, <laughs> we're going back to elections in Israel, and I know it's not easy for Israel to go through and those of us who follow it. But essentially, this is why we're at a logjam in Israel. There are three reasons. There are three reasons why we're at a logjam, and a lot of people are only talking about one of these three log reasons for it, as if that's the only reason. But if you don't really address and think about these three reasons, you're, you're not going to be able to solve the problem. You have to be able to, uh, to, to uh, analyze these problems correctly. The first reason why we're at a logjam is that you have the leader of the Yisrael Beitenu party, party, Avigdor Lieberman, who is not willing to join in the coalition with Benjamin Netanyahu, even though he is a, this is a right-wing party, this is a party that's not interested in joining with the traditional Israeli left or even the moderates. Um, they are very hawkish on defense. They are very hawkish on a lot of social issues. They, but, but Avigdor Lieberman doesn't want to join with Netanyahu until Netanyahu promises to really ram a draft bill down down through the Knesset and get a a, a, a mandatory draft percentages for the Haredi ultra orthodox community, and he just won't make a deal and join into the Netanyahu co- the rest of the Netanyahu coalition, which would have given them a, a clear majority in the Knesset. He just won't do it without that promise of Netanyahu. And Netanyahu isn't going to do that because, at, at, as the results of the last election showed, Avigdor Lieberman had five Knesset mandates, five members of the Knesset, including him and his party, whereas the religious parties, the Haredi parties, who he really wants to stick it to, had 16 I mean, let's do the math. 16 minus 5. Yeah, that's still 11 more seats. <laughs> okay. So that was where uh, Netanyahu was, and he was unable to really uh, work juggle those two demands. The Haredim did not want to accept that draft bill. They would have bolted from his government. Lieberman wasn't willing to join without it, and so that was reason one. And Lieberman also has a bone to pick with Netanyahu. He wants a probably a full-scale invasion of Gaza to really, really root out Hamas and the rocket launchers and everything else like that. And Netanyahu clearly is not ready to do that. Um, whether it's not now or whether he wants to wait, I don't know. But that has to, and that will be part of my, dealing with Gaza will be part of, the, a part of what I think is, is, is a decent plan to fix this issue. But that's the second issue. The second issue is that Hamas is in the way. Hamas is in the way in a way that, they're causing trouble in Israel in a way that goes just as, just as much as the rockets. Because they are hanging around and, and beefing up their aggression. There are people on the right, led by Lieberman, who don't want to give in and join a Netanyahu coalition until he promises to do something about Hamas that's more substantial than what's been done before. So that's the second issue. And the third issue is this. The, the party that got the second most votes... In the election in April, the Blue and White Party, this brand new party created of a bunch of, uh, a couple of ex-chiefs of staff of the military, a couple of other top names, they are a party that really only has one goal in mind, and that is to stop Benjamin Netanyahu from remaining the prime minister. That's really all. They don't really have that much of a policy standpoint that we can really, really pin down. It seems like most of their policies are exactly what Likud would want. It's hard to tell exactly where they stand on a ton of stuff other than being basically the same as the Likud or the center-right in general in Israel. But 
the one thing they won't back down on and the one thing that you can really define the blue and white party by is their opposition to Netanyahu. They want him out. They want him out, and they're not going anywhere. And part of that is, of course, the biggest weapon they have in their arsenal, rounding out the, the three big reasons, one being, again, the, the Haredi draft issue with Avigdor Lieberman, the Hamas issue, and the blue and white issue being anti-Netanyahu, and that is this impending indictment. Again, he's not been formally indicted yet, Benjamin Netanyahu indicted on basic some, certain types of corruption charges. And I've talked about the, the thinness and the weakness of these corruption charges against Netanyahu uh, in past editions here of Novak now, here on the Nachum Siegel Network. But it's still an issue. It's still hanging over him. And if he is officially indicted, it will be very difficult for Benjamin Netanyahu moving forward. I don't think he would be would forced to resign right away. I don't think anything that like that drastic would happen. But it would be a real cloud over his head, as much as the cloud of the impending indictment already is, and, and, and more than that. So these are the... These are the roadblocks. How can we fix these roadblocks? How can we possibly be done? Is everyone just going to start getting along if, if I someone snaps a finger? No. That's not going to happen. I don't think that problem number one, which is the Haredi draft issue, can be fixed by the Haredim giving in a little bit and Avigdor Lieberman giving in a little bit. In other words, would Avigdor Lieberman give in if Netanyahu said, well, let's create another bill that lessens that percentage. You want 10% of Haredim drafted, Haredim drafted by a certain year, we're going to go for 6%. Would you accept that? <laughs> he might, but the Haredim won't. And I don't think that that's going to happen. So what do you do here? The issue here that has to happen is some kind of election result has to happen where Netanyahu can look at that 16, or in the latest polls, it says something, says something like 14, let's say 15 to round it out, where Netanyahu can look at those 15 Haredi party mandates in the Knesset and say, I don't need you. I can create a coalition without you. So how is he going to do that? How is he going to do that? Well, the answer is not going to Big Door Lieberman, because he only has five seats. The answer is finding some kind of common ground with Blue and White. Now, how can he do that? I've already told you that Blue and White's only mandate is to get rid of him. I think what Netanyahu needs to do is sit down with maybe not even the leadership of the Blue and White, but maybe let's say he can find 20 or 30 members of Blue and White, let's say 20, or 15, or 10. And sit down with them and say, look, Likud's still getting the most votes. may not be much more than you guys, but when you add in all the right-wing votes, center-right-wing votes, we've got a clear majority. We just couldn't make a coalition, and you know what the issue is there. But the Haredi parties probably will never sit down with you, not unless you give up the store to them. And as long as Yair Lapid, who hates the Haredi parties even more than Avigdor Lieberman does, is, is one of your leaders in the blue and white, that's not going to happen either. I think Netanyahu needs to say this to them. And I know this is going to be very hard for him to say, but he has to give in something. <laughs> I think what Netanyahu should say is this. I've already been prime minister for 10 straight years and about 13 years overall. I'm the longest serving prime minister in Israeli history. Let's work together. You guys come over to Likud. Join, uh, rejoin us, because some of these blue and white members are ex-Likud. Join us. Let's get the clear majority so we don't need the Haredi parties. And I will promise that this will be my last three, four years. The next time elections come around, I'm standing down. That's it. This is my last dance. I'm already the longest serving prime minister. I've given it my all. And I will be able to go down. And of course, he's probably going to want some kind of concession on the indictment as well. Some kind of immunity. Is that a big, big stretch? <laughs> yeah, but it's not as big a stretch as hopefully one day, you know, hoping that the Haredi parties will be okay with the 10% draft. As Rabbi Yotav Eliach has, has said, and 
you should get his book, Judaism, Zionism, and the Land of Israel, he says to me all the time that the Haredim going into the army and doing more national service is an evolution, not a revolution. It's not going to happen quickly. But if Netanyahu can win over 10, 11, 12 members of Blue and White with a promise to step down after this election, with some real commitments there so that if he doesn't do it, he, he, really, takes, he really gets in trouble, some kind of real solid promise on his part, and he would be smart to keep it, then they can be a coalition big enough to figure out what to do with Lieberman, to figure out what to do with the Haredi parties, and finally get some kind of coalition, something close to a national unity government in Israel. That's what I think could solve Israel's political problems. Maybe a little bit of a stretch, but not impossible. This is Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I hope to speak to you again next week.